Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Political Science. I'm Susan Liebel, and today I'm pleased to welcome James M. Jasper, professor of sociology at the CUNY Grad Center, to discuss his new book, Public Characters, The Politics of Reputation and Blame, published by Oxford University Press in 2020. Michael Young, professor of sociology at the University of Texas at Austin, and Elke Zurn, professor of politics at Sarah Lawrence College, also participated in the writing of the book. Welcome to the podcast, Jim. Great. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. So public characters, the the book examines how what you term character work, which is the sort of simplified packaging of intentions, of capacities, of actions, of public figures uh, that are that are that help to mobilize the public and their passions, help them to understand these characters in a particular way. And you present this as something that is not new, but something that we need to attend to, in particular because democracies need to understand how these characters come from where they come from and how they are character cheering is used by politicians to influence the public um, so that we can keep public characters in, in bounds. So I'd like to start with this idea of um, character work. I mean, we have so many words for this. We have rhetoric. Uh, we have heuristics. You don't like a lot of those. We have propaganda. You don't like a lot of those words. And you would like us to think more in terms of characters. So let, let's start there. What does that mean? Well, characters are familiar. They've been around for thousands of years. They're the, the heroes and the villains of epic and, and myth. And there's an irony, I think, in that modern fiction has tended to downplay traditional heroes and villains. Uh, traditional heroes and villains were partly divine. That's where they got their strength from, whether they were good or they were bad. And so as we have become more secular over time, uh, heroes are not quite as strong. We're a little skeptical of heroes. So in sophisticated fiction, uh, characters, round characters, as they're called, are out of favor. But they're very much in favor in politics, as they always have been. Because if you want to attract attention, and especially if you want to mobilize emotions, characters are a very good way to do it. Characters come as part of their package with a suggestion or demand about how we're going to feel about them. If you're a hero, we're supposed to admire you. Uh, We're supposed to fear and dislike villains. We're supposed to pity victims. And we're supposed to laugh at minions, all these little creatures who are malevolent, but not really strong enough to do anything about uh, being a threat unless they, till they team up with a villain. So um, it's, it's interesting in a way because the emotional power of narratives, of speeches, even of images in politics 
really come from these characters uh, because we know how we're supposed to feel about them. You lay out a sort of two-by-two chart to help us understand the characters with one uh, axis being morality, uh, good versus bad, and another power, strong versus weak, which is how you place the heroes, villains, uh, victims, and minions. But you you also have a third dimension uh, of activity. So I was wondering if you would just flesh out a little bit why you lay this out in this way and um, and and how that helps us understand characters better than something, for example, like rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Well, the first two dimensions, I think, are the mo- more obvious ones. Uh, good and bad clearly is a is a key part of politics. Who do you who do you like? Who do you root for? And who do you dislike? Who who do you fear? Um, the the strength also gets at how big a threat someone is. So um, then also the the dimension of active and passive. Uh, a more active character is going to be more threatening if they're malevolent, uh, and they're going to be more protective if they're heroic, if they're benevolent. So, uh, for example, with um, with a lot of heroes, we don't really want heroes to go around looking for things to fix. Uh, we want heroes to sort of wait until a wrong has been done, until a villain has done something. So they're sort of sleeping giants, as, as we call them, until they uh, are needed to protect people. So then they go from passive to active. And we sort of admire that process, I think, because um, they, they aren't looking for trouble, but they're ready to set things right when there is trouble. So that's why the passive and the active dimension is, is also important. Uh, you can't apply it equally to heroes and villains because Villains are almost always active. Uh, There's almost no such thing as a passive villain. Uh, A passive villain is a defeated villain. Um, Normally, we expect uh, expect villains to be always on the lookout for opportunities, for ways to, to threaten us. They're just not very threatening if they're passive. So heroes, we, we want to be passive at the beginning. Villains, we expect at least to be uh, very active. So these three dimensions work their ways, interacting in various ways to, to help us define these characters. But they all have, they combine for an emotional impact. They have a rhetorical purpose to them. When you talk about characters, you usually mean public figures, but sometimes you're also talking about groups. Can you speak to those two types of characters, the public individual and the, the stereotyping of a group? Mm-hmm. Well, sure. Public figures already have reputations. And so the character work for them is just a matter of trying to figure out, well, will that reputation be for, for malevolence or benevolence? How strong do they seem in this reputation? Um, how active or passive? Um, normal people don't really have those kinds of reputations to fight over or to, to work at, but they can develop them. Uh, even among friends, we might have a reputation as being a good, solid person who will be generous when necessary or, and, and so on. Um, the, um, the, certain, uh, the, the raw materials of public characters can be applied in personal life to individuals, 
or to occupations, as we see now, uh, the healthcare workers who've become recognized very strongly under COVID, under the COVID crisis, as heroes. Um, they're not traditional heroes, and they don't have a sword. They don't have a cape. They don't fly through the air. They're not superhuman. They're very human, but they have the normal characteristics of heroes, which is they are protecting us. And they are being very brave in taking a lot of risks on themselves. So the same sort of vocabulary of public characters, the the bits and pieces, the visual images and so on, can be applied to normal people. They can also be applied to groups as stereotypes. We stereotype certain groups as strong or as weak, as good or as bad. And so there's a lot of character work that can go on there in a more anonymous way when it's applied to, to anonymous groups as opposed to well-known public figures. So you mentioned swords and capes, and I think one of the interesting things that I found about the book uh, are the images, many of which you took yourself. So this isn't simply about narratives in the rhetorical tradition. This is, this is about how we use the visual, the sculptures, the magazines, the sometimes you do some stuff with music as well to to build characters. Can you say a little bit more? Because you know, often in political science and sociology, we're, we're talking about texts, we're talking about people. You certainly do that in the book, but you really want to make that uh, connection between both the visual and the narrative. Well, I think there are two um, factors going on here. And a little bit of the history of the project is it, it came out of my own dissatisfaction uh, probably 25 or 30 years ago with narrative theory as it was emerging then. It was becoming very fashionable. And it was all about the plot, what follows what, how, how plots are put together. And it, occur- it seemed to me that the real strength of narratives, its emotional strength, and I am mostly a scholar of emotions, in fact, Um, the emotional strength of narratives comes from the characters in the narratives and how we feel about those characters. And so as I began to think about the characters and it sort of began as a critique of narrative theory, uh, I realized, well, you can develop characters, you can do character work in ways that's not really narrative at all. Uh, that are visual. In fact, um, much more strongly or much more efficiently, you can create a public character out of a very simple drawing, out of a little bit of graffiti. There are little gestures, there are facial expressions that connote a a victim or connote a hero or a villain. Uh, And we process those so quickly, so immediately that it's much um, less cumbersome than to put characters into a narrative. So that's when we began to look much more at the visual side of character construction because in the modern world, we're, we, we live in a world of images. They work uh, on our, our consciousness or our subconsciousness very quickly, and um, they can be devastating. Um, you can ridicule a public figure or a public character uh, in a way that's just devastating. And I think some of uh, Donald Trump's strength as a candidate was his ability to come up with a single word, the, the epithet that raised doubts about some of his competitors, some of his fellow candidates. And he's, uh, he's very good at that, or at least he was in 2016. 
So there's, there's a, a visual image or there's a single word that epitomizes someone that is a, can be a very effective form of character work. And it really doesn't have much to do with uh, narratives and, and texts at all. So I want to talk to you about Trump because it frames the book and it really uh, demonstrates why character work might be so important politically. But but I want to follow up first, and it's related to Trump, with this notion of immediacy and simpleness. So one of the powers, it appears, of character work is this nonverbal signaling that, as you say, is immediate. We don't need it explained to us. We don't need a lot of words in a sense, the character work is is depending upon something that we already know and is and is signaling to us in this very very um, effective and efficient manner. What about that simpleness? Is that something that is worrisome about character work because it can reduce the complex and nuanced to the simple and emotional? And what does it mean to call on perhaps prejudices that we have that are recalled immediately with that wink or gesture? Mm -hmm. Well, there are prejudices that are good and there are prejudices that are bad. Um, What Images like like emotions. Uh, images can can draw up cognitive beliefs that we have that are perfectly rational and thought out, but they they can raise them in a in a split second. That doesn't mean that they are wrong. Um, one question would be the process by which we then check them, test them, decide whether our first impressions were right or not, and psychologists show that we're fairly stubborn about our first impressions. So there is a, an element of potential irrationality there. But we go through a lot of processes, especially in politics, of, of testing those impressions, of challenging them. So um, I'm not terribly worried that because it's a visual image, it necessarily makes us irrational or necessarily makes us take positions or vote in ways that we, we wouldn't otherwise. But this has been an issue in rhetoric for 2,400 years, the fear that a good speech or a good turn of phrase will lead voters or will lead juries to, to make decisions that they later come to regret. And uh, like so many things, the ancient Greeks had elaborate mechanisms for trying to prevent this from happening. Um, you know, there's, so there's some truth to it, but um, I think on the on the other hand, these these emotions, these symbols, these these tropes of character also can inspire us in good ways. We realize, well, yes, this is a trait that we admire, or because uh, or we admire this person because she embodies this trait, uh, say, of helping others in a in a crisis or of keeping her family fed. This is something that we admire. And so it helps us uh, reinforce and articulate and realize our moral, uh, our moral visions, our moral intuitions uh, to reinforce them in ways that can be good as well as bad. So just because it's quick thinking and just because it's emotional doesn't mean it's bad thinking. So in terms of Trump, um, you are obviously um, 
on the one hand, see him as a master of caricature of char- character work. Uh, you also say that he's really good at character assassination. So he tends to he, he tends towards the negative, and I think you're you're trying to make people more aware of how he's using a particular medium, which is Twitter, in order to do this character work. And and Twitter figures in some of the narrative in the book. And I was wondering if you could bring out a little bit more about the doing of character work and this particular medium, which is new, uh, Twitter. Yeah. Well, uh, it it requires brevity. So uh, I think the key to good good tweets is uh, to pick out just a couple words to emphasize and uh, as we know about Trump he's a man of a fairly limited vocabulary and so uh, you see certain words that are t- very tightly connected to character work in his in his tweets in his speeches in his and in, in his uh, uh, interviews and press conferences so his favorite word is a, actually a positive word which is strong now that's the essence of heroes. They are strong. Um, so, but it's something he admires. He doesn't, as far as I can see, uh, have much of a dimension of uh, good and bad that isn't uh, collapsed to strong and weak. Strong people for Trump are good. He admires that. It doesn't matter what they use that strength for. So this is why he can admire Putin for example, who mm-hmm. does a lot of bad things with his strength, but uh, it's, Trump still admires him simply because he's strong. And you see this collapsing of those dimensions very often in, in uh, cases where uh, survival is at stake. So the literature on concentration camps, for instance, well, for, for the, the people in these camps in World War II, uh, the, the survival was everything. Um, so morality just vanished. You would do unspeakable things, her, her, her morally uh, questionable things simply to survive. And so it suggests to me that Trump, Trump's view of the world is uh, basically one of competition and survival, uh, survival of the fittest, you, you could say. So strength is what matters and um, other moral niceties just disappear. And it fits with a kind of uh, macho, traditionally male view of the world, one masculine view of the world as as competition, a hierarchy, who's going to come out on top. And uh, everything else, the, the ethical, moral niceties disappear. So I think that's one of the reasons we see this very streamlined attention to to strength. Uh, it it becomes good and uh, good and bad plays a role. You know, the strong people are the good people. The Democrats who whom he opposes, uh, they're bad, but they're also weak. Uh, you know, he never admits. Oh well, that's that. Nancy Pelosi is strong, but but bad when he when he attacks her. So it's it's both. His ability to, to simplify the world, or I think he lives in a very, uh, <laughs> his view of the world is very simplistic. Um, but it's also this, um, this collapse of the moral dimensions. So you've mentioned swords and capes and strength and macho. 
Um, and actually, as the book was beginning and you were talking about Trump and Gary Hart and Dan Quayle and later Eichmann, I, you know, I was wondering about the issues of gender and whether the setup of strong versus weak, in a sense, would lock us into a very, very old dichotomy of male-female, of passive and active. But the, the book takes on gender in some really interesting ways. Um, women do display strength, um, and you say that they are viewed as heroic, but they're also viewed as more villainous when they're strong. Hillary Clinton is the villain. Nancy Pelosi is the villain, especially for Trump in these ways. Mm-hmm. And you talk about the change that in content. So on the one, so let me be clearer. So on the one hand, you want to think about this tradition that in a sense has been around for 2,400 years. On the other hand, you're very nuanced about how our understandings have developed over time and evolved. And you you look to the 18th and 19th century as the sort of moment in which there was more complexity, more psychological characters. Uh, and you, you talk about women embracing that more than men. I think it would really help to understand how you see strength evolving and how you see it not just uh, tying us into the same old dichotomy of man strong, uh, woman passive. Yeah. Yeah, there, it's it's two dimensions, right? It's strong versus weak, and it's active versus passive, and both of those dimensions have traditionally worked against women. But I think I think feminists and women uh, women's movement faces a challenge, the same challenge that a lot of marginalized groups do, which is: Do you try to change the the basic idea of the characters, what it means to be a hero, what it means to be a victim? Or do you try to allow your group entry into the hero category and uh, avoid the victim category? So do you change this, the, our cognitive structure of characters, or do you simply change the groups who are in these different categories? And I think it's a, a dilemma that uh, a lot of groups face, not just, not just women. So yes, traditionally, Men were the heroes. Uh, women were potential victims if if they if they were in myth and epic at all, which they generally weren't. They they weren't really public characters enough to be considered in the to be put into the the narratives and to have character work done on them. Um, but there was all there were always different sources of strength. So the classic difference was um, between. Achilles and Odysseus. One had the traditional warrior strength, the strong arm. He could win in battles toe-to-toe with opponents. Uh, The other was smart and wily and clever. So brute strength and, and smartness have at least been two very different kinds of strength. And so a lot of these myths, as I say, recognize this, this contrast, this um, tension between them. In the modern world, there are even more sources of strength. And I think this reflects women's greater participation in public life in the 19th and 20th centuries. So we have, for example, not just military heroes or, or smart heroes, uh, uh, but we also have heroes of endurance, we call them. 
So the women who during wars may not go out to battle, may not arm themselves, but they stay home, they take care of their families, they take care of communities, they maintain the social networks, uh, they, they, they protect uh, people just as much as the, as the men do who are out on the, the battle lines. And these heroes of endurance are, have, have become very important in the wars of the 20th century. And they allow a very, uh, a new, different kind of heroism that women are especially capable of, of performing. So you have that alongside the demands that women should have entry to traditional forms of heroism, whether it's political leadership or serving in the military, serving in combat roles. Um, But these are very different, I think, um, political projects. Uh, We see we see them both in in feminism, but uh, they've they've they're really important in today's world. And as as heroes have have become less of the traditional macho Achilles type, uh, there's there's certainly more room for for women and for minority groups who were also excluded from a lot of the sources of strength that allow heroism. In thinking about heroes of endurance, it seems like you know there would be one possibility, which is that we uh, um, you know take the traits and tropes that have always been assigned to women, and then we say that they too can be heroic. I'm wondering if you see, and that seems to me to have possible dangers. Do do we see male heroes of endurance? Are they too? protecting through social networks and taking care of families? Is, is that character work that we see? So that's a great question. Uh, men do that kind of work. Uh, I think the, the tendency is that women do more of it. Women are more connected to families and take care of families. But uh, uh, when men do it, in fact, they're, they're, it's a, it surprises us. And so men often get a lot more praise for doing that than women do. You know, so when men are nurses taking care of people or, or something like that, or when men do emotion work, uh, everybody says, oh, look, isn't he a sensitive, wonderful male because he's doing emotion work? Um, right. He's doing the kind of work that women are used to doing and really don't get much credit for it because we expect it of them. So there is this funny twist on that, I, I think. But... I think we also clearly are recognizing uh, as heroes the people who do this caring work. And uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, the, the nurses, the nurses' assistants, the ambulance drivers, all the people in the healthcare, the front lines of the healthcare system, um, they are joining doctors. Doctors always were heroes. They had science behind them. They would intervene heroically and do surgery. We've always admired doctors in a kind of heroic way. But now we're recognizing that all of the the other healthcare workers are also heroic. They're also making sacrifices and they're also uh, saving us. Part three of the book has a really interesting discussion of how we have complicated victims and how we have um, have 
had this tension between being a victim and being a hero of, of, of thinking about blame and causality. And I was wondering if you would flesh that out a little bit more for the listeners. Um, you're, you're very concerned with this and you've got such interesting things to say about genocide and how we've, we've rethought the categories. Yeah, well, as a student of social movements, I see movements as uh, very often efforts to uh, first establish some victimhood. Establishing victims is showing that there's some wrong that has to be righted, some social problem that has to be fixed. But the question is, who's going to fix it? And it's one thing if it's, say, the animal rights movement, because in that case, Human beings, uh, PETA and other animal rights groups say, they're going to have to fix it on behalf of the animals because the animals can't fix it themselves. Um, The same is true of movements uh, to protect children, for example. But when it comes to movements of um, survivors of child abuse, for example, or simply oppressed minorities of all sorts, the group itself, the group who has been victimized, have to fight. They have to do it themselves. This is not something that can be just handed to them. You, you know, if, you, if you have freedom handed to you, it isn't really freedom. You have to have that confidence, that sense of agency, that uh, sense of your own group doing something in the world. So you have to move from being, a vic- being victims to being heroes. And that's not always easy to do. Uh, for example, uh, after, after a civil war, uh, groups have a choice between sort of emphasizing what happened to them, what the, how they were victimized, and, and maybe getting some compensation for that, versus becoming full, strong members of a community with their own agendas and projects and sort of putting the victimhood behind them. Victimhood makes you something less than human, I would say. It, it, so if, if you're a victim, you don't really have agency. You don't really have a sense of your own voice. You don't have the power that it takes to be a full citizen. And so somehow you have to get all of those things in order to participate in politics fully. And, but but you, you don't necessarily want to give up the compassion that you get from being a victim either. So there's been good research on, for example, adult victims of child sexual abuse. So people go to uh, appear on TV shows and the producers give them teddy bears. They encourage them to cry. They really encourage them to regress to what they were as children. And that gets a lot of compassion from viewers but a lot of these, a lot of these folks um, don't really want to regress that way. They're survivors. They're strong, mm-hmm. um, and and they want to be. They want to be heroes. They want to be masters of their own fate. And that's a, that requires a different kind of character presentation. Um, so a lot. There are a lot of movements that that uh, face this dilemma and are, have to move. So it's often called um, the movement from shame to pride. And we we think, of course, gay and lesbian movements, uh, LGBTQ 
few movements that way, but a lot of movements basically have to put aside that kind that kind of shame of being a victim, being passive, being acted on by others in certain ways. And they have to take over the more heroic strength of crafting their own fates. It's funny, as I was reading that part of the book, I was reminded of another book that I uh, interviewed the author of a few weeks ago, Repair by Catherine Frankie. And she talks about freed, free people versus slaves uh, and freed with a D people. And she calls the D the dangling D, this sort of <laughs> this remnant of something that you can't get rid of because you're not actually free. You were freed and you have this slave to pass. And I couldn't help thinking about that. Um, possibly, um, yeah, because the, the two of them came together for me. Absolutely. I want to ask you a question about race and about the cover of this book. This is quite a cover. Uh, when I took it out of the envelope, I thought, wow. Uh, it portrays Washington crossing the Delaware, the sort of uh, a, a very familiar image for most Americans, yet the Washington figure is a black man. There is a cook. There are all of these characters. Um, I believe a kind of Aunt Jemima character uh, mm -hmm. rowing the boat. And I was wondering if you could explain the image and explain why you wanted to make it the cover of the book. Yeah, it's a it's a fairly well-known parody of uh, the, the Gilbert Stewart painting of Washington by a Black artist, um, now deceased, Robert Colescott. And it's, um, it's actually called George Washington Carver Crossing the Delaware. And instead of the, the white George Washington, who was always portrayed as a very bulky, large man, he, he, was, he looked just the part of a traditional hero. George Washington Carver here, it looks a little frail. The clothes uh, fit him uh, a little loosely. He's wearing eyeglasses, uh, as, as befits his role as more of an inventor than uh, any kind of military hero. And then, as you say, the, the, the rest of the rowboat is peopled by stereotypes uh, that uh, have, have dogged Black Americans for a couple hundred years. They're all there. There's Uncle Ben and Aunt Jemima and so on. Um, so... It, I, I, number one, I think it's a, a great painting and, fair, and shocking. And number two, it goes through, it, it, it speaks to our argument later in the book that we, we now can take a kind of ironic distance from characters who in the past were taken very seriously and solemnly, uh, heroes especially when they're founders of nations. There's a kind of earnest quality to them. Uh, heroes are, are very rarely funny, for example. Villains can be funny. Minions are supposed to be funny. Um, but the good characters are, are not supposed to be funny. But now we can have a certain, certain distance from character construction. And so Colescott is actually uh, making fun of the kind of hero myth, the kind of hero worship character construction that has gone on over George Washington. So um, I, I liked the image for that, for that very reason. Um, and um, I, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's just a terrific painting by an artist who's it's not as well known as he should be. Do you think um, 
one of the most compelling parts of the book has to do with 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 making uh, you know, and, and I do politics, so I'm interested in this in this part is making the public understand when character work is being done to them. In a sense, you're not just trying to uh, describe a phenomena. You're you're trying to make the public understand what might be done to them, put them on alert, help them understand when people are trying to mobilize their passions so that they can be more thoughtful, so they can uh, resist when necessary. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm wondering- When necessary too. I'm sorry, say again? Or they can embrace the characters if they find that they're consonant with their basic moral values. Correct, right? But to have to to understand that the work is being done, that things are being simplified, that that tropes are being used to 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 create this sort of immediate connection that we might have to resist, even if ultimately we are going to decide in favor. Um, and I'm wondering, in terms of of racism and stereotyping of other kinds, how how aware most Americans are when, in fact, these tropes, to return to how you open the book with Trump, are being used. Do do they see it? Do they see that there is character assassination happening? Um, And how much help would they need to to not just notice it, but to understand that they themselves have certain assumptions that they need to be more critical of? Mm -hmm. Or is that not part of character work? Sure. Well, I I, I, I would hope that uh, normal people would read the book and uh, become better citizens for it. Uh, for the most part, we are trying to explain rhetoric. We're trying to explain how images work or how music works, how characters are made. Uh, so um, we have, for example, long lists. What What little gestures or what uh, what animals are trotted out metaphorically to represent different characters? Um, so most of it is really for the scholar who's trying to understand how politics work and how people are mobilized. What does it take to form a social movement uh, that that makes victims into heroes and so on? So a lot of it is very just explanatory social science. If there is a, a takeaway for citizens as a whole, yes, um, we should be aware of how these things are affecting us. We should have some distance when we want to have distance. I think a lot of what goes on with emotions in politics is we know perfectly well what emotions we're going to have when we go to a rally or when we read a book or see a kind of movie. And we have the experience, we seek out that experience precisely to have those emotions. Uh, We want to rejuvenate our anger over some public policy, or we want to protest. And when we're losing interest, we're losing our momentum, our our energy for the political action. So we go to a rally and we become enthusiastic again. But emotions, uh, not all emotions, but a lot of emotions, we craft for ourselves. We put ourselves and we stage manage our our actions in order to feel certain emotions, in order to, to to have the thrill of feeling emotions. We we go to the movies to see villains get their comeuppance, 
and to see heroes wreak vengeance, but we know that's going to happen. Um, or we know that that's not going to happen when we go to more sophisticated movies. So we, we manage our, our actions we, and we use our emotions for that, I would say. No, that's a great way to end. Uh, tell me what's, what you're working on now, Jim. I'm actually playing out some of these themes of strength by writing a book on different ways to be manly. Because I think social scientists tend to, they trot out the term masculinity a lot, but there are dozens of actions that, that can be treated as a, as a way of displaying masculinity and sort of like strength, uh, brute, brute strength versus being smart in characters, uh, these, these different ways of being masculine are often at odds with each other. And some, some people use some of them and not others. Um, and women use some and not others to, to varying degrees. So I'm really, it's very, it's very early stages of the book. It's kind of fun to write about uh, some of these tricks that people use to either persuade themselves that they're manly or to persuade others that they're manly. Well, good luck with that. Uh, The new book is Public Characters, The Politics of Reputation and Blame from Oxford University Press. You can find it on the Oxford University Press website. You can also find it in the United States at Bookshop, which will tie you to independent bookshops. During COVID, we're encouraging people to reach out to closed bookstores that are still shipping here in New Jersey. I'll give a shout out to Labyrinth Books uh, that will mail your books to you. And it is, of course, available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, etc. Jim, thanks so much for taking your time to talk to us today and uh, good luck with the next project. Great. Thanks. It was my pleasure. 